Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Deidre Tyler, a host on New Books in Sociology. I'm talking with the author of What We Mean by the American Dream, Stories We Tell About Meritocracy, with the author Dorian Tasik. Hello, Dorian. How are you today? I'm fine, Deidre. How are you? I was wondering if you would say something about your background. What led you to this area of research? Well, I guess, so there are a couple of different threads that come together there. The first one is that I was a journalist for about 10 years before I became an academic. And when I left journalism to go go into academia, one of the things I was interested in was the sort of the little summaries that, that I learned to use as a journalist to describe somebody I was writing about. So, you know, if you picture like a newspaper story or a magazine story and and a character comes up and there'd be like a little paragraph where you'd back up and say, you know, Jimmy grew up on a farm in Iowa and his parents did this and et cetera, et cetera. You sort of, you know, bring them up to date, sort of explaining their life, you know? And uh, I was interested in the, the choices that we make about those kinds of things. Uh, why, which details get included? And I started doing some research around that, around the idea of life stories and uh, the life stories we use to summarize people. It took me a while to realize that what I was really interested in there and what I think is really important in a lot of American life stories is the idea of merit. Uh, I don't know, Deidre, do you remember the whole uh, we are the 99% movement? Yeah. So there was like a whole website where people would post these screenshots of themselves saying we are the 99% and they would have little stories of, you know, their, their economic lives. And then there was a, a rebuttal website. People would say we are the 53% and they would post stories of their economic lives. And I wrote a whole paper about those websites without really recognizing that merit was the central issue in them. Um, and, uh, and then I finally sort of came around to the idea that, that, that this idea of whether people had earned what they had was like a central question in a lot of these stories that you were hearing in American culture. And so I started to ask, well, okay, what are we focused on in those stories and how do, uh, how do they work? What patterns are they? And, and, and what are the standards that we use for uh, for deciding whether whether or not somebody earned what they have, the other thing I guess I should say is that you know I did uh, grow up. I, I I went to this high school in New York City called Hunter College High School, which is a uh, it's one of these schools that you take a test to get into, and and kids from all five boroughs of New York City can take the test and try to go there, and so it was a very like. There was a lot of meritocracy energy there, a lot of focus on, like, you know, uh, success at that high school. 
that's really interesting that you attended a school that focused on uh, getting ahead and those sorts of things. Now, you ran across all sorts of people. I think you interviewed over 55 people. And you started off talking about these two uh, brothers, which I know the names have been changed, Eric and Philip. Can you elaborate a little bit more about their lives? And even though they came out of the same households, they ended up different. So, yeah. So, so Eric and Philip, uh, which is not their real names, but I guess that's not, not terribly important here. Um, they uh, are two brothers a few years apart. And when I met them, Eric was 28, Philip was 25. And, and, and basically, Eric was doing well and Philip wasn't. Uh, they had both grown up in the same house with the same family, no major sort of economic changes to the family during the time uh, that uh, they were only three years apart. It was, it was the same environment, you know, uh, and they both gone to college on a scholarship and and things were working out for Eric. Things had uh, fallen into place uh, for him and things had not for Philip. And what I was interested in about them was the different interpretations that they offered of why things had gone the way they had. So Eric, the brother who was doing well, basically said, I mean, you know, he, he said all, all, all thanks, you know, go to God. But he also said, I am successful because I'm good at my job and because I hustle and because I push for things. And he felt that his brother was not very good at uh, sort of pushing for things. He thought his brother was good at things he did, but he didn't sort of really know how to uh, assert himself, how to exercise his ambition, how to talk to people, stuff like that. Uh, Philip thought that this was nonsense and that he just basically run into bad luck over and over and over. He kept on doing good work and doing the right thing. But I think I'm not going to get the quote exactly right, but he says, every time I get my foot in the door, they slam the door shut. Um, and, you know, this was, I don't know, uh, during a difficult economic time in the United States, lots of doors were being shut. Um, and so they had these really different interpretations of how they had gotten to where they were but there were a couple of other interesting wrinkles there. One was that when I asked Eric, well, do you think we live in a fair, you know, more or less society where people get what they deserve? He was like, oh, of course not. You know, so even though he thought in my case, I've been able to sort of exercise agency and earn what I have. When I, and in my brother's case, he hasn't. Um, when I look around society, it doesn't work that way. And Philip said, I still think I'm going to be successful, even though everything he told me in the interview up to that point suggested that he saw all around him a society that wasn't really working in a meritocratic sense where the things that he did were not influencing his outcomes. And so I just left my conversations with these brothers feeling like, the, the, the ways people think about how they get to where they are and the relationship between the way we think about our own life and the way we think about the societal rules don't always exactly line up, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And, you know, luck plays a role. How, what did you see in terms of people describing luck as being a, a role in their success? 
Well, so I think the first thing you got to do to talk about luck is to sort of define what we mean by luck, because you've got your sort of like lucky breaks, like, uh, you know, meeting the right person at the right time at the Phillies game or whatever. And then you've got your sort of structural luck. Like I was born into an upper middle class family and I went to good schools. My parents helped me pay for college, et cetera, et cetera. Now, people, people talk about both those things. You know, one of the things that, um, that really struck me and that I try to emphasize in the book is Americans have some sort of reputation for thinking it's all us. You know, we all, we all do stuff on our own. And what I found when I actually talked to people is, is people are, are, are very aware of the role of factors outside of their control in their lives. They're very aware of the role of luck in their lives. What people do is they tell stories about how they interacted with their luck and whether they sort of made good decisions or bad decisions in relationship to their luck. So they're almost being sort of like, if you have bad luck, well, okay, you have bad luck, but your job is to keep trying and change the odds, right? Or, or, or sort of improve your odds of getting good luck down the line. And if you have good luck, your job is to take advantage of it, to, to seize the moment. And so luck matters in, uh, in, in, in both cases. But then when we tell the stories, we focus in on, well, what did we do in relationship to that luck? It's just so very interesting when we're looking at society today. Uh, are we basically looking at effort, abilities? You talked about the American Idol. Give us an example of someone that you focused on in that chapter, the American Idol. Oh, okay. So, so, so this is a chapter early on. Uh, where I talk about some of the stories we tell about famous people in uh, in American society, so like the and and I, and 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 I actually didn't really focus on the sort of like you know uh, uh, you know Kardashian style celebrity famous people. I focused on these sort of like icons of accomplishment. So I looked at sports stars. I looked at people you know like very very successful business people, and I looked at politicians. Uh, presidential candidates specifically. And I said, well, how do we explain their success? And do we tell meritocratic stories about them? Do we tell stories that say, you know, this was about their effort and their ability, or do we say it's because of luck or circumstances or some other kinds of factors? Um, And what I found that's really interesting to me, at least, is that, I think what we do is we fight about it. You know, we take a person, we take a famous person, an icon of accomplishment, and we talk about them in the public sphere. We put a lot of energy into trying to figure out, did they earn it? Do they deserve to be there? So let me, uh, let me give you an example. I mean, the, the chapter starts talking about uh, the uh, Republican politician Carly Fiorina who, when she was running for president in 2016, uh, used the slogan, from secretary to CEO, because she said she had worked as a secretary and risen up to be a CEO. And so it was a very sort of like 
it, it was a slogan that suggested a very meritocratic rise, you know, like that she had, 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 had climbed up this whole ladder. And the Washington Post did a story about her saying this slogan is kind of a lie because even though she was a secretary and did go on to become a CEO, she had gone to Stanford and her father had been a very successful, like I think a law school dean and like worked in the Nixon administration. She was part of the upper crust. And so, yes, she worked as a secretary as like a summer job or something, or like briefly after college. But uh, uh, that slogan did not really capture her likely trajectory uh, based on where she came from. And it launched this sort of like little media fight about, well, does Carly Fiorita deserve her prominence? Does she, did she earn her position in society? And is this slogan accurate? Um, and the sort of like uh, uh, big takeaway I took from that was not that one side or the other was right about Carly Fiorita, although I have my opinions on that, but uh, it's that we were obviously not just taking for granted that this successful person had risen there according to merit. You know, we've, we fight about whether or not successful people deserve their success an awful lot. And so I think the crux of like our, uh, our preoccupation with meritocracy in the stories is not to prove that everybody who's really successful in America is successful in America because of their efforts and abilities, but it's to ask whether they are. And then we argue. I think you're right on that. But, you know, we're now seeing a generation of parents that are doing a lot of curating of their children's lives. So will we see more of that type of person who's saying they started as a secretary, ended up as a CEO, you know, that type of thing based on the curation, all the different opportunities that uh, parents, upper class parents are giving their children? So what I think is interesting there, 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 there was a guy who used a phrase that I really liked to capture what I think is an important dynamic in these stories. He said he was born on second base. Deidre, I don't know if you're a baseball fan. Okay. So, you know, that like, there, I don't know, there's an expression about being born on third base. And the implication of that is that like, you, you didn't do anything. You scored very easily. Right. And so this guy says, I was born on second base. So what he meant by that is like, I had a sort of good setup, a reasonable amount of advantages. I had a, came from a good family and I went to good schools, but it was nothing ridiculous. My parents didn't give me millions of dollars and they didn't set me up in business or anything like that. Right. Um, and what I took that to mean, and a theme I heard over and over in interviews was, was people sort of saying, well, yes, I had advantages, but they were not unreasonable, right? Uh, and so I was still able, within the context of those advantages, to do good stuff, right? To, to exercise my efforts and my abilities. And because of that, I'm still able to sort of comfortably conclude that I, that I earned something, I, you know, I, I didn't encounter that many, like, well, I guess I shouldn't say this because I don't know for sure what people's actual backgrounds were, but I did not get the impression that I encountered a lot of Carly Fiorinas, right? People sort of like 
uh, uh, trying to shoehorn a secretary, a CEO story onto themselves. It's just so very interesting because uh, so many different factors. I was wondering, did you think about location in terms of where people live in contributing to their success? Well, so I should be clear in terms of, uh, I, I don't have any insights to offer about how people actually succeeded, right? So what I'm focused on is how people explain their success. Um, uh, as far as location goes, it's a really important question and a really important like consideration. Um, my interviewees were largely in and around Philadelphia, which is where I live, uh, but not just in the city. So I did some interviews in the city. I did some interviews in the wealthy suburbs. I did some interviews further out in the sort of more rural excerpts. And then I did a handful, maybe about 10 interviews out in uh, York, Pennsylvania, which is a smaller uh, sort of Rust Belt city. Um, and there was a uh, there was a guy from York who sort of explicitly cited the fact that he lived in York as the reason that he wasn't getting what he deserved for American life. He said, I come from one of the places in America that have been left behind by, uh, you know, sort of globalization and various uh, economic factors. So he saw he saw. Uh, uh, location is mattering. Other people talked about the neighborhoods they grew up in as being really important factors in their lives for sure. Now, I do think that it is sort of fair to wonder whether there's a very different culture around certain aspects of this in completely different geographical places, right? So I'm mostly in and around Philadelphia and in New York, Pennsylvania. I bet I hear some different things if I talk to people about this stuff in Silicon Valley. And I bet I hear some different things if I talk to people about this stuff in Appalachia. Although I do think that a lot of the central insights would be likely to, to hold at least somewhat in terms of the, again, not how often people conclude they earn what they have, but the factors they consider in making that determination and sort of the values they use uh, in prioritizing that determination. Yes. And you know, another really interesting aspect of stories, people making choices. What were some of the interesting stories you found about choice, decision-making in their careers yeah. or lives? Yes. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of a couple of good examples. Uh, I, I remember uh, talking to one woman who uh, had left the uh, workforce to raise her children. And uh, when her kids became, you know, older teenagers, wanted to go back and felt like she couldn't anymore. And as a result, she felt like her the professional life had not really been a success. I should say she couldn't go back into the kind of thing that she wanted to do. Um, and uh, as a result, she felt the professional life had not been a success. 
And she put that on herself, you know, she didn't say that was circumstances where you look at, okay, what was, you know, in what sense did you screw this up and what's or you know, as she saw it, or in what sense did you sort of earn your failure? Um, it was about her choices, right? It was not about her effort and it was not about her ability. It was about decisions she had made. And that was another sort of really important, um, component of meritocracy, another component of how people evaluated the role of merit in their lives was, did I make good choices? Now, even within that, there are some choices that people seemed like more inclined to want to hold themselves responsible for than others. And so, so people would sort of say, if, uh, if I have good information, whatever I had good information when I made that choice, then it's on me. But if I had no way of having good information then I don't feel nearly as responsible for it. I had spoken, I, I interviewed one guy who was, I don't know, something around 30 and he had gone to college and he had studied, uh, you know, some aspect of sort of like construction or architecture. And he had a job as a, as a draftsman at a construction company and then a housing crash happened. And he lost his job as a draftsman. And when I met him, he was working as an assistant manager at a retail store. And he did not feel like he had made a bad choice and thus earned falling out of the housing industry. You know, he didn't think like, this is on me because I made a decision that didn't work out. And, 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 Whereas the, the, the lady who'd been a homemaker and then couldn't go back in the workforce did. And it was because of sort of the information they felt was available to them at around the time they made the decision. Yes. And, and you talked about the big spenders versus the penny pitchers, you know, in terms of spending and choices. I thought that was very interesting how this one lady talked about not spending. Give us more information about that. Sure. So, I, yeah, I think it was interesting, too, because when we think about, like, the idea of, you know, earning success in, in the American dream, we tend to think about, like, again, like hard work and to some extent ability and doing good work uh, and like climbing a professional ladder. But for a lot of people, when they thought about whether they had earned what they had, they were thinking about financial decisions they made with the money they had earned from work that didn't have a heck of a lot to do with their effort or ability in work, right? Like in their professional lives for them, they felt like they had earned their financial status by not spending their money or making good investments with their money. Or on the flip side, they felt like they had earned their, you know, uh, uh, troubled or suboptimal financial status by spending too much money, by making poor decisions with, uh, with their money. Did you interview any people who were struggling from addiction or serious social issues? I did. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to think. I, th I think I called one, uh, one man in the book, Daryl. Um, and he had been struggling with addiction for uh, for some years, 
when I talked to him. And that was one of the harder interviews I did because he felt that his life was, uh, was a mess. And he felt that he had completely earned the mess. He felt that it was on him. It was because of poor decisions that he had made uh, around drugs and uh, 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 you know various other things that, that stem from that. Um, and uh, and I, th- I th- you know I think the conversation was really hard for him because of that to really focus in on a question uh, that was obviously a profoundly uh, difficult one for him and sort of hanging over his head of like, you know, essentially my life has gone badly and it's my own fault. Um, uh, you know, that was hard. Um, an interesting and sort of more nuanced one. I mean, you mentioned social issues. So I'm going to talk about this, uh, this, this man I interviewed named Thomas who, uh, when he told me his story, he said he had grown up rugged. Uh, he'd grown up in, uh, I think it was North Philadelphia. Uh, and he was in and out of juvenile detention uh, throughout his youth. And then he told me, you know, when I was 18, I, I said, I'm not going back to jail. But not long after that, he said some cop came along. He was standing there and told him to take his hands out of his pockets and then slapped him and he put up his hands and the cop was like, you're not going to put up your hands to me. And he got arrested. And so now he's in the adult criminal system. And from there is his life really never takes off. He's in and out of, uh, of jail and prison and he's on probation and parole all the time. Um, at some point he said he was like, driving to see some family, I forget where, and he got pulled over and got what he said was a racist ticket. And and he would say, you know, this is just the way the system is set up. It's this, you know, for people like me, he said, I have a brother who's been in jail for 41 years. And then when I asked him, well, do you feel like you've earned where you are? He said, well, I made some mistakes. There are some things I could have done better, you know, uh, I forget, you know, he took, he took the blame for some, not all of his arrests, but the ones that he took the blame for, he felt like were enough to say, this is still on me. I did earn what I have. He even blamed himself for his failure to pay the racist ticket that he got for driving uh, somewhere. I don't know. I don't know what the ticket was for speeding or stop sign or something. And, uh, and I just thought that's a really powerful example of our ability to see the powerful influence of external factors on our lives and still conclude that in our individual case, we still earn what we have because we can sort of isolate and focus on the things that we did within those contexts. Now, not everybody concludes that. Some people do sort of conclude, well, I, I, I think I, I don't deserve this. Either I got too lucky or I got too unlucky. But our ability to get to the conclusion that it's on us is, is, is pretty powerful. Yes, it, it really is. And I was just wondering, looking at demographical factors, um, looking at people in terms of race, gender, age, were you finding a lot of similarities or differences? 
so I was really looking for similarities. Like that was what I was most interested in was finding the places where there's something that intersects and sort of, I, we, we can call this the American culture around merit meritocracy. Uh, and, I, and I do think I found some of those, but, but they're pretty broad. They're like a preoccupation with the question of meritocracy. Within that, within the kinds of stories people told, there are absolutely important differences. Um, you know, uh, black people I interviewed were uh, much more much more likely than uh, white people I interviewed to bring up race as an important factor in their lives. Uh, usually, I, I, I shouldn't say usually, but but when race came up. Uh, it was, uh, uh, it was most often a, a non-white interviewee telling me that racism was a problem and it held them back in their life. Uh, they saw that as an important influence. Now, in a lot of cases, I would talk to people who said, yeah, this is a really racist country and that has affected me, but I still think I earned what I have or I still think I you know, did not earn more than I have, right? So people would see racism and factor it in but not sort of treated as a deciding factor. Um, I think a lot of the white people I interviewed, if I had asked them specifically about race, would have sort of folded it into that whole born on second base dynamic. Like that's an advantage and it's a shame that other people don't have that advantage, but I'm also not going to sort of conclude that I haven't earned what I have because of that advantage. But that's a guess. I didn't ask people explicitly about race. I let them bring it up. Um, across gender, uh, I definitely got the sense that women and younger women were more likely to point at external factors in their lives as extremely influential and perhaps decisive, uh, more so than individual factors. Um, so that's my insight there. Was there another category you asked me about? I'm sorry, Deidre, I forgot. You, you mentioned, uh, gender, race. Oh, so yeah. So, so I, I think that, uh, younger people are a little more open to the idea that external factors are really important in our lives. Things like luck, things like class, things like race, things like structure, um, it's interesting though, to wonder whether that is a cultural shift or if that is just because as you get older, you do more things that you can start to point to as the reason for your outcomes, right? Like somebody who's older than me has had more chance to influence their life than I have. And somebody who's like, you know, 21 years old hasn't really had that much opportunity to influence what becomes of their professional lives. Uh, and so there is just some like practical difference there. Yes, very much so. Now, in the end, you talked about what deserves got to do with it. Tell us a little bit more about that ending and, and how did you come about with that ending? Um. Well, what I'm driving at in the end is I'm sort of trying to, uh, as, as I said earlier, I was, I was interested in trying to figure out what do a lot of Americans sort of have in common 
in terms of the way we tell these stories and the way we think about, think about these issues of, of what we've heard and what we deserve. And um, what, I, what I find and what I argue is that a lot of people are uh, really committed to the idea that figuring out whether someone has earned what they have is possible and important. Um, and what I argue in the book is that if we were going to do something different in terms of our sort of cultural interaction with meritocracy, this is what we should push back on. Uh, even, I mean, there is a lot of pushback already in American culture on the idea that we currently live in a meritocracy. Uh, we have been fighting about that for a long time. We are fighting about it a lot right now. Um, you know, like how, how fair American life is. What there is not enough pushback on is the idea, is the sort of the question of whether we can live in a real meritocracy, whether life actually works that way, whether that's a coherent idea. Uh, the idea that somebody's efforts and abilities can sort of reliably determine how well they do in life or is luck always an important factor? I mean, you know, we want to live in a society that is, that is more equal and where people have more equal opportunity than they do now. Um, but I think we also need to, you know, start doing a better job of acknowledging that it's not just a question of like figuring out how to get to a real meritocracy that we're not going to get to one. So what kind of, sort of uh, social supports and safety nets and, and quality of life do we want to have given that reality? Well, I think your book is right on time because we are looking at a new society, a restructuring of how things are going to be done in the future and what people are, are going to be uh, doing to obtain these resources. So this is a really good book to examine all of those questions that people are looking at now. Are people getting things that they're supposed to get? Is society fair? All of these questions. So tell us about your new project. Where do you see yourself going after this project? What are some of the things that you're going to uh, focus on with your next project? Oh boy. Uh, well, it's not about uh, that. It's not about whether society is fair. Um, I am right now working on a project with a few colleagues uh, where we are interviewing uh, American conservatives about their uh, ideas about the media's coverage of COVID. Uh, there's been a lot of sort of like uh, distrust and anger from, uh, from, you know, the, the sort of like conservative side of the American divide about, uh, uh, uh you know, journalism and how, uh, journalists have covered COVID. And so we're trying to, uh, get a better idea of sort of what the exact shape of that anger is. And, you know, hopefully down the line, come up with some ideas for how to build more trust in journalists from conservatives so that we can, you know, get better behaviors around things like 
mask wearing and uh, just 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 a, a, a more uh, uh, you know just better information than places like you know Fox News and Breitbart.com offer. Wow, that seems to be an exciting project. Well, you know, I've taken up enough of your time. I have enjoyed it, and I know everybody else has. And we're waiting for your next project. Thank you again. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me.